And welcome to the latest edition of the One Hood Power Hour. I'm your co-host, Kahari Mosley, here with my illustrious co-host, Miracle Jones and Ryan White. And we have an incredible, incredible show uh, tonight. Uh, Miracle threw our producer hat on and got two incredible guests. Uh, we're going to be joined by Congressman Mike Doyle and Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman. Boy, do we have a lot to talk about tonight. Uh, you know, uh, wow, how are we going to get it all in an hour? Um, so much has happened, um, you know, since we last spoke. And obviously I've been, you know, off for a couple weeks, enjoying the holidays, getting ready for another busy year, kind of celebrating the victories. But since we last talked, uh, Reverend Warnock and John Ossoff uh, are going to Washington to represent Georgia and the United States Senate. Um, shout out to the One Hood Power team. Um, that sent over 90,000 text messages to mobilize voters uh, in the state of Georgia um, and uh, really did a phenomenal job uh, and, you know, looking forward to, you know, replicating that, um, you know, not only in Georgia, but here in Pennsylvania around the spring primary and the, and the fall general election. Uh, wow. But before we go any further, uh, Miracle Ryan, you know, let's talk about, you know, the, the story that everybody's been talking about that really kind of uh, put John Ossoff and Reverend Warnock's win on the back burner um, and kind of made it, you know, a back page story was um, these incidents here in Pennsylvania at the state capitol, um, just a horrible treatment uh, that Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman got uh, in the state Senate, as well as the story that everybody's talking about. Um, an insurrection at the United States Capitol. So, you know, before we bring our first guest in, you know, let's let's kind of just do what we can to kind of decompress and, and kind of analyze, you know, what would happen. You know, honestly, my head is still reeling, but I would love to get your point of view. I mean, it was a groundbreaking historic night in Georgia. Um, for those of you who are not aware, um, last Tuesday in Georgia, um, for the Senate runoff race and the Senate race, um, Georgia elected its first African-American um, Senator uh, Raphael, Dr. Reverend Dr. Raphael Warnock, as well as its first Jewish Senator, um, uh, Senator-elect John Ossoff. Um, and it was a very contested, one of the most expensive political races um, in U.S. history. So there's, there's a lot to be said um, for a, a how much money is going into politics right now, but it was a very historic night. Um, a lot of people came out to vote. There was over 3 million um, early votes casted um, in the runoff races. So it was really groundbreaking in numbers, groundbreaking in turnout, um, and groundbreaking uh, because of the results. Yeah, no, it was, you know, as Miracle just mentioned, you know, really unprecedented as far as um, turnout you know, both for runoff election and for a non-presidential election in general. Um, yeah, and it, a really historic night. It's a shame that, um, you know, a couple of these events from the past past week that occurred shortly after the election have really overshadowed that. Because um, this is a, you know, a monumental victory uh, for the people that worked for it in Georgia. Um, you know, I, I think it really, you know, is a very clear indication of the idea that, you know, a lot of these organizers and a lot of people in general have been saying for a long time that Georgia and a lot of these other other southern states aren't aren't necessarily red states as much as they are uh, voter suppressed states. Um, and you know, with with so many different tactics of, of voter suppression, uh, you know, on the books legally and otherwise, 
I think that's a really important point to drive home. And, um, you know, this election where, where turnout was able to be so high through so much, you know, grassroots organizing on the ground and other efforts, um, and what happens when, when those efforts are able to proceed um, and be executed at that level, again, really shows that, that Georgia and, you know, potentially a lot of these other southern states with a similar similar climate um, aren't, aren't red states. You know, that's that's only reflects a certain, you know, percentage of that population um, and really voter, voter suppression um, plays a much bigger factor in the outcome of these elections historically than, than a lot of people had been willing to admit previously. Right. Now that's absolutely true. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm having some issues with my tech technical on the technical side. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, you know, you know, we're all really reeling from, you know, what happened, um, you know, at, you know, at, at the Capitol, uh, you know, all types of information is coming out. You know, obviously we had a call earlier today. We talked about, you know, the impact, uh, you know, uh, you know, that it may have on the upcoming inauguration, um, the impact that it may have on state capitals, um, you know, all over the country. I know there's a call uh, to, uh, you know, to march on state capitals all over the country. So, um, you know, I think at this point, you know, a, a lot of folks have a lot of anxiety and a lot of fear about, you know, what you know, may happen, you know, over, you know, the next, you know, week and a half. And not only that, you know, I think a lot of folks are really starting to get worried about, you know, what the next year or next few years may be like, given that, you know, we've kind of crossed, you know, this line, you know, in the quorum. And maybe we crossed it some time ago and just didn't realize it. But, but yeah, we definitely, you know, have reached, you know, territory we haven't seen probably in at least 150 years. I, I, I'm. I think it's there has been a lot of contested situations going on, and and I think a lot of times we always look at them as like isolated events. But there's been a lot of you know violence brewing uh, in various parts around the country, Pittsburgh included. And I think that um, what we saw for the Capitol was one um, a lot of deference, like. People were like, this can't happen here. Like, this won't happen here. Like, clearly it's, you know, and so I I don't want to speak we're underprepared. I think that we, for some reason, just assumed that people were going to be peaceful and they were not. And I think also a lot of times we like that false sense of security that uh, being, um, quote unquote, in American politics gives us. And we allowed a lot, we ignored a lot of signs. There have been people who've been saying, you know, violence is coming. We're, we're putting a bunch of stuff together. I mean, I think, I think that is unfortunately is what we saw over the weekend. Um, but we did also see, like I said, a lot of, uh, was Ryan said unprecedented wins with voter turnout. We see a lot more people are engaged. A lot of grassroots organizations all across the country are doing voter engagement, um, voter turnout. And so there are a lot of positives. You see a lot of people coming together in mutual aid and support. And so some of the stuff we're also going to talk about um, at the end of the show. So I think that's also um, a, a reminder that while it seems like a lot of things are falling apart, there are a lot of community organizers and activists are coming together to support each other. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I just wanted to talk briefly as well about 
um, you know, some of the some of the narratives, whether they be from politicians or the media, and the misconceptions that I've seen, you know, being thrown around all over the place, uh, following, um, you know, call it call it what it is, the domestic terrorist insurrection at, at the Capitol this week. Um, you know, as as always, when something like this happens, you hear politicians and, and media pundits, et cetera, talking about, you know, this is not America. This doesn't represent America. We're you know we're better than this. Um, and I I just don't know how many times we can possibly say that same thing, especially in like a given year before we just recognize that that's not the case. Um, and you know, this is what it is. And I think the sooner we can recognize that, um, you know, the, the sooner we can start to really address that and, you know, actually effectively work towards changing that. Um, you know, just all the things people saying like that, um, you know, oh, this looks like a scene from from Colombia or, or Turkey or you know somewhere else in Eastern Europe or something. It's like, no, honestly, <laughs> those those countries have had a lot of those countries have had a much more um, peaceful recent history of transfers of power at this point. So I, I think it's time we need to recognize that um, that no, this is actually America, um, and you know, work needs to be done accordingly. Um, and another another thing that was frustrating to see. Um, was people, again, politicians, media pundits, et cetera, talking about, you know, um, how could we have not seen this coming? How could we have not been prepared for something like this to happen? Um, and again, the answer to that is that for anyone who's been paying attention, like we absolutely did see it coming um, with the continued escalation of, of rhetoric and calls for action from, from Trump, from various other politicians, from people all over his base organizing, um, you know, Proud Boys, people on, on Parler and even Twitter and more mainstream websites, um, you know, this was a, this was a pre-planned orchestrated event. Um, they absolutely could have been prepared for it if they chose to be, you know, I, I lived in DC for a few years and it's a very, very heavily policed city in general, especially around those areas. Um, you know, I've been around, I've been on city blocks of DC that were like three miles from the Capitol where, where they were better prepared for this at the time. Um, so yeah, those were just a couple things I wanted to talk about. Um, that as far as I'm concerned, have just been huge, huge misconceptions and misconstructions of, of that event. Yeah. And we're very uh, glad that you shared that insight uh, about being in DC. Um, and another person um, who was actually in DC when this happened is Congressman Mike Doyle, who is joining us. Originally we wanted uh, Congressman Doyle to talk about um, some legislation that was co coming down that just got passed. Um, about uh, diversity in the media. And so we were already in conversation. Um, and then the situation, this insurrection happened. Um, and so we've also asked Congressman Mike Doyle to join us, who's going to be coming in now, um, just to talk about what it's been like this past week, what actually is happening, and just, just some words of guidance um, to uh, us uh, throughout Pennsylvania. So welcome, Congressman uh, Mike Doyle. Well, uh, thank you very much. Uh, <clears throat> I, I agree with the gentleman that we're just speaking of. Many of us saw this this on on just mainstream internet sites. I think what surprised uh, many of us is how uh, the plan that the Capitol Police and other security agencies uh, had put together uh, was woefully inadequate. And I think to some extent there's investigations going on. Uh, they couldn't have done much of what they did without help from the inside. Uh, this, this was coordinated with people inside the Capitol uh, and inside the government. 
And uh, I just saw on the news today already uh, some Capitol Police officers uh, have been charged with uh, being part of this. And there's more under the under investigation. So uh, we still have a lot to learn about uh, who perpetrated this and, and how they were able to access the Capitol the way they did, why the Capitol Police, uh, they weren't even in riot gear uh, and there was not much of them. And requests for help from DOD and other agencies uh, were being stalled. So, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I, I mean, it was a complete and total failure uh, in terms of the security. I just got off a security briefing uh, for the inauguration, and they're talking about the uh, uh, type of security fencing that they're putting up now for the inauguration that's not scalable. Uh, what they had that day on January 6th was bicycle racks, uh, and, and the perimeter was, was so close to where the buildings were. Uh, it, it just didn't make any sense to a lot of us that were there and, and watching this unfold. Um, so there's going to be thorough investigation. We're not going to have answers very quickly. Uh, but the important thing is to make sure that every single person uh, that was involved in this is prosecuted and goes to jail. Uh, and I think we're going to find, unfortunately, uh, that some of those people are going to be people that could uh, not only be on, on the Capitol Police Force, uh, but also maybe members of Congress and other people in the government. Uh, and uh, that's an ongoing investigation uh, that, that is going to continue far past the inauguration on the 20th. Uh, I thank you for that. And I don't want to um, traumatize you in, in any way, shape or form. Um, but if you could, if you feel comfortable, can you walk us through what happened? Because um, you were there in D.C. Um, from your point of view, just like what happened and what were you being told was happening when um, people were storming the Capitol? Well, if you can remember, we, we were there to count the electoral votes. Uh, and it was going alphabetically. So the first state that got challenged was Arizona. Uh, at that point, when someone issued a challenge, a House member and a senator in writing, uh, the joint session of Congress then breaks apart. The senators go back to their chamber and the House members uh, stay in theirs and, and two hours of debate commences. Um, because of COVID, uh, the amount of people allowed on the House floor was was greatly restricted. So many of us that had states that we believed were going to be contested, Pennsylvania being one of them, uh, were told to stay in our offices until it was time for us to come down on the floor and defend uh, the, the electoral votes of our state. Uh, so I was not on the House floor uh, when it happened, but my office in Cannon uh, sits on the Independence Avenue side of the building, which gives me a, a clear view over to the Capitol. And I could see the Capitol Police lined up on the House steps and the Rotunda steps and the Senate steps. And uh, by my count, there was maybe 15 or 20 of them. And, and uh, I noticed there weren't many particular uh, kind of riot gear. And the other thing that struck me is that the fencing, uh, which I said was like bicycle racks, uh, low, low level, people could have stepped right over them, uh, was very close to the perimeter of the Capitol, which didn't make a lot of sense to me. Normally, uh, when we have large demonstrations coming to D.C., and we have them uh, frequently, uh, the perimeter that's set up is back on the grassy area, uh, and no parts of that parking lot uh, are people allowed to congregate. Um, so the, the whole setting seemed strange, uh, and, and then a couple of those bicycle racks were opened up and people were actually standing at the bottom of the steps. Um, now, if you've been to the Capitol, the doors going into the house 
and the rotunda and the Senate are like 20 foot tall iron doors. There's no way to breach them uh, if the doors are shut. Uh, but when those people rushed uh, the Capitol, uh, they started breaking out windows uh, and, and, and people actually from the inside got those doors open. Uh, and, and the 10 or 15 police officers were facing literally hundreds of people that were just just pushing it, uh, uh, against them. Um, these people had uh, many of them. You know, I, I described two types of people that were inside the Capitol. Uh, there were some that were wandering around, looking up and down like they were on a museum tour, uh, and and uh, were caught up in what they thought was something fascinating. And then there was a a group that uh, some of them ex-military uh, trained, knew exactly why they were there, where they were going um, to find the speaker's office. There's members of Congress that don't know where the speaker's office is. You have to go through a, a small hall off a statuary hall to a very tiny elevator to go up to the third floor. That's, it's not a marked office, uh, yet they knew exactly how to get up there. Uh, and the same with the other offices. The Secret Service whisked away the vice president uh, and the speaker before they could break into the House or the Senate. Uh, and people were literally, some of them were cheering, uh, ch chanting, hang pence. Uh, which to me, here's, you know, the vice president who's uh, been probably the most loyal person in the Trump administration. Uh, and the first time he decided not to go along with an illegal act, uh, the president uh, called him a traitor and, and, uh, and, the, and the supporters did. But there were people there that were, were that they were equipped with uh, zip ties uh, and other instruments to, to uh, they were looking to capture prisons. They kept yelling, where are they? Uh, they were looking for members uh, and somebody to capture. Um, so you, you had a, an element in there that had a clear mission uh, and, and they were sent there to stop the vote. Uh, and the other thing that struck me is I kept saying to myself and to others, I started making phone calls and said, where's the National Guard? Uh, for the longest time, it seemed like there was nobody coming to the rescue, uh, that it was just uh, the Capitol Police uh, and they were being overwhelmed. And it really wasn't until they got thousands of National Guard troops in there uh, that they were able to finally get people out of the building uh, and then do a search uh, for bombs or anything left behind uh, and, and uh, say that the building was safe enough for us to go back in uh, and continue the count, which we did uh, till about three o'clock in the morning. Uh, we actually spoke uh, when Pennsylvania came up, I believe it was around one in the morning uh, when that debate started. <clears throat> so it was um, it, it left a lot of us with a lot of questions. And, and like I said, at the uh, intelligence briefing, which is still going on, it's going on to 730. Members are right now uh, asking questions. Uh, there's a lot of things that need to be answered. Uh, a lot of what happened on the 6th doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <clears throat> and uh, the type of preparation that the Capitol Police made and the other people that were charged with securing the Capitol that day. You know, this wasn't, uh, you know, th this wasn't like an event that there wasn't some talk that they were going to stop us from doing this. And many of us just assumed uh, that there was a security plan in place. I've been there a long time and I never felt that the Capitol could be breached like that. And I think that's what most members thought, that there wasn't anything to worry about because we thought they had a good security plan. They obviously didn't. Hey, how you doing, Congressman? Uh, you know, thank you for your service. And it's always uh, great to see you, Congressman. Uh, 
you know, how uh, can, you know, so, and, and you know, uh, as well as everyone in, um, in the country that, uh, you know, there's folks, you know, within your own body, you know, that, uh, you know, were helping fan these flames, as, as has been said so often over the, over these past several months. Um, is there going to be some sort of an accountability mechanism, uh, you know, for those uh, members of, of Congress that seem to have, you know, uh, you know, may not have played a direct role, um, you know, in, in, in what happened last Wednesday or may have, you know, played, you know, a more direct role than we know. But is there is there uh, an accountability mechanism to hold those folks accountable? Because it seems like, you know, and I think Ezra Klein uh, did a great piece talking about, you know, how, you know, many of these folks are getting pulled off of planes as they should or losing their jobs and getting identified from all over the country. Um, and, and it looks like they are going to be held accountable. But the folks that put these ideas in their head, um, you know, are they going to get you know held accountable? Because in some ways, there is a personal responsibility thing here. But also, if someone gets on TV for a year and keeps you know telling misinformation, misinformation. Some people, you know, are, are going to believe that misinformation. You know, so how can we hold those folks uh, accountable as well who put these ideas in people's heads? Well, part of that's starting already. There's been a uh, something called the Sedition Caucus, and we are publicly identifying uh, all those members of Congress uh, who uh, were part of an effort to undo the will of, of, of the voters in the six states they were originally uh, going to disqual try to disqualify. And uh, I think there's some other members that, uh, you know, Congress has the power to censor or expel members. Uh, Mo Brooks comes to mind immediately as someone who's taken a very direct role uh, in inciting that crowd. He was at that rally, uh, and I believe his exact words is, it's time for us to march to the Capitol and kick some ass. Uh, <clears throat> I, I think, you know, he stands out in my mind. But there's many enablers right here in our state of Pennsylvania. Uh, eight of the nine Pennsylvania Republican congressmen stood over there and tried to make us believe uh, that the vote in Pennsylvania was somehow tainted. Now, this is the same ballot that all their names were on, uh, counted by the same scanning machines and the same county elections departments uh, all throughout Pennsylvania. And we're supposed to believe that their elections were, were run fairly, that the three statewide offices, which Republicans won two of, uh, the, all three seats were previously held by Democrats, that all those elections were fine and nobody was calling for a remedy to undo those elections, just the one for president. Uh, Act 77 that allowed us to do uh, uh, no excuse mail-in voting, that was a Republican bill. Every Republican in the state Senate voted for it and all but two in the state house because they thought it was a bill that advantaged them because they got rid of straight ticket voting. That was their goal, was to eliminate the, the lever or the ability for people to vote straight Democrat or straight Republican. And, and in return for that, they put forward this idea, we'll give you mail-in, no excuse mail-in voting if we get that. There was 120 days to say that act was unconstitutional. Not a single Republican challenged that act because they liked that act until somebody didn't get elected that they wanted to get elected, Donald Trump. And then Mike Kelly and the rest of the Pennsylvania Re Republican delegation, with the exception of Fitzpatrick over in the southeast part of the state, 
said the the whole uh, vote should be negated for in Pennsylvania because Act 77 is unconstitutional. I mean, this is the hypocrisy uh, of, of these Pennsylvania Republicans who are enablers. They are part of the reason that people think, think the way they do in their districts because they perpetuate the lies being told by Donald Trump in their own congressional districts. And they've created a Frankenstein monster that they can't control anymore. You know, these Republicans, they're not afraid of Trump. They're afraid of the people they created in their districts. Uh, and and that, that's why this is so difficult for many of them, even after there's video evidence uh, of an of a insurrection taking place in the Capitol, uh, they're, they're unable to join us uh, in an impeachment resolution. Uh, we have called on this president to resign. That was plan A. We have urged the vice president, and tomorrow night at about 7.30, we'll be voting. Uh, we tried to do it this morning by unanimous consent, and a Republican congressman from West Virginia objected. So we have to have a full vote, which will happen tomorrow night, urging the vice president to invoke the 25th Amendment. If he fails to do that, uh, we will move forward on the next day with an impeachment resolution, which just says one article of impeachment. And we don't need to have a trial. Uh, to decide whether or not this offense is impeachable. This president incited an insurrection against his own country. If that's not an impeachable offense, I don't know what is. Uh, and we're going to make every Republican and every Democrat in the House and the Senate uh, cast their votes. We'll cast it on Wednesday. Uh, and there's still some discussion when this will go over to the Senate. It could get over immediately or there's some talk of delaying it. And I haven't heard the latest on that. Um, but we have to make sure I was asked on, on channel four today, uh, the president's leaving in, in less than 10 days. You know, why, why do something that's further going to further divide the country? This president led a coup against his own country. And we're supposed to say he's leaving in 10 days. So let's just forget about it. That can't happen. Uh, every future president, uh, and everyone in this country needs to know, uh, that that behavior has to be held accountable. Uh, and whether or not the Senate convicts them or not, uh, in the House of Representatives, we're moving forward uh, because there is no way in the world we're going to allow this guy to walk out of office. And I got news for you. There's many groups. I got emailed today from a, a group that said that he's still going to be president on the 20th, that when he said that there's going to be a new administration, that he just meant he was getting rid of the traitor Pence and his cabinet that were disloyal to him, and that he's already got the army ready to, to help him take back uh, the, the, the country. There, this, this is what's been created by that and, and by a, an internet uh, that, that allows this kind of disinformation uh, to circulate freely to, to, to millions of Americans. Uh, whether it's on mainstream sites like Twitter or Facebook, uh, or whether it's on the lesser known far right sites like Parler. And, and it's just now that the Internet providers, you know, the Twitters, the Facebooks, the others are finally saying, well, we're going to start to police that. Well, they should have policed it four years ago. Uh, that That is in the bailiwick of the committee that I chair. Uh, and there's going to be some uh, intense scrutiny on Section 230, uh, which is the liability shield that allows these uh, providers to not be sued for what other people post. Uh, that's going to be a big discussion, too. Congressman, um, thank you. So, thank you again so much for joining us tonight.
um, and for providing all that information. You actually just answered um, the question I was going to ask about, you know, your motivation for, for co-sponsoring the articles of impeachment um, and how that process was likely to play out. Um, so thank you for going ahead and answering that. And um, yeah, so I guess another thing I wanted to ask you about, just to shift the topic a little bit, since this was the original reason um, that we wanted to have you on here, was just to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about that media diversity bill, um, the House, Re House, House Resolution uh, 549, I believe, um, and just talk about um, how it, it pledges to eliminate barriers to media diversity. And so, you know, what specifically is meant by that, what you see those barriers as being, and, and how, um, you know, the House and yourself will, will work to address that. Yeah, the, the bill in the House uh, was, was uh, put forward by Val Demings, uh, and there's a companion bill in the Senate that Senator Jackie Rosen uh, has introduced. The problem with 549, and, and it passed the House by voice vote, and the reason it passed the House by voice vote is it's a resolution. Uh, it has no binding effect. It doesn't mandate anything. It doesn't require anything. It's just a statement of principle. So, um, you know, what what is important is we need legislation. Now, my committee, which has jurisdiction uh, for media matters, we let four bills out of my committee last year on media diversity. Um, one was this, which was a, a resolution about the intent of Congress. Um, one was about requiring broadcast stations and cable companies to start to disclose their EEO hiring data so that we could scrutinize what kind of a job they're doing that. And the last one that was introduced by G G.K. Butterfield was uh, creating an incentive program to help minority groups and women to purchase broadcast stations because it's really abysmal number of, of minority owners. I think it's 3% of broadcast TV and radio stations are owned by people of color. And, and one of the ways I think we can reduce the, these barriers is uh, putting in place, you know, we have to put in place real policies that create meaningful opportunities for ownership of media organizations by people of color and transparency and accountability uh, as to the employees at these organizations. Um, these should start to reflect the communities that they serve. And unfortunately, what we see is just the opposite. Under the Republican administrations, we've seen a lot of media consolidation. And when these medias consolidate, you lose the local aspect of that. Uh, and, and so what we're trying to do is, is, uh, is, is change that. And one of the good news pieces was Georgia. Um, that Georgia Senate election changed a lot of things for what my outlook is for next year or this year. Um, <laughs> whoever thought Georgia would send us uh, a, a Jew and a black person <laughs> in the U U.S. Senate. Uh, that was that was something like, well, that ain't never going to happen. Uh, but, you know, people in Georgia came to the polls and they voted in record, record numbers. Uh, and we now have a 50-50 Senate and, and the vice president, uh, Kamala Harris, will break that tie uh, to put Democrats in control of the Senate. What that means is we control the agenda and we control what bills come to the floor. Those two bills that come out of my committee that, that we got out of committee, but we couldn't get them passed over in the Senate was because Mitch McConnell won't let anybody vote on these bills. He just buries them. We had 400 House bills sent over to the Senate, over 250 of them bipartisan. And, and Mitch wouldn't let them come to the floor for a vote. They were so busy just appointing federal judges. 
now under Democratic control, Joe Biden's agenda and our Democratic agenda will at least get to the floor and people will have to be held accountable by how they vote. The last hurdle is the filibuster. Right now in the Senate, if you want to pass things through regular order, you need 60 votes. Well, we don't have 60 votes. We have 51. So the question is whether the Senate will give up that age-old Senate rule. It's not constitutional uh, of, of requiring 60 votes, the 60-vote rule, the filibuster rule. Um, a lot of them don't want to do it on either side of the aisle, but I believe uh, that it's time for us to do that. This would be a way for us to be able to get uh, much of our agenda and much of, of what we're trying to do on media diversity, not only out of the House uh, and over to the Senate, but over to the Senate in a form that we can actually pass it uh, if we can get 51 votes. But I think for a lot of things, you know, we're going to be able to get that 60 vote margin. Uh, and, and I can't stress enough how big a, a deal it was uh, to win those two Georgia seats, something that even up to Election Day, uh, I thought we might win one, but I never dreamed we could win two. Uh, it was the one silver lining in, in what was a really horrible week. Yeah. So, Congressman, I do thank you so much for stepping out of, you know, the hearing to, uh, to come and talk with us. It's very much um, appreciated. Please feel free to come back. And like I said, thank you so much. I hope you and everyone in the office of the Capitol stay safe. Um, and hope that y'all have like mental health support and mental health care because that's very, you know, a very traumatic thing um, to go through. So thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. I look forward to coming back. Take care. <sighs> it's been a week and um, while stuff was going on in Capitol, at the other Capitol in Harrisburg, there was more um, events occurring. And so joining us to talk uh, about some things going on here locally and some of the responses that we need to be aware of is uh, Pennsylvania uh, Lieutenant uh, Governor John Fetterman and uh, Julie Strickland, who is joining us um, just to talk about the events of the past week and some things that we can um, look forward to in here in Pennsylvania. So welcome, Lieutenant Governor. Hi. Hey, Hi, good to see you. <laughs> Ooh, so, how are y'all doing? <laughs> uh, not, not much has been going on lately. So yeah, another, nothing at all. Another, another week. Yeah. So, um, so Lieutenant Governor, I will start with you. What happened at the Senate? Like, what is going on, and what are how are is this issue about uh, Senator Brewster's seat going to be resolved? Sure. I'd be happy to. So um, last Tuesday in the Senate was basically what I would call picture day, where all the new senators of both parties that either won re-election or won their election are sworn in. And it's really just ceremonial. Families are there. And, you know, it, it's it's one of those, like, bi pleasant bipartisan days, at least traditionally. So the Senate GOP majority announced that they were not going to see Jim Brewster, who happens to be my state senator as, uh, as well. And their rationale was, is like, well, he had a close election, so we're not going to, to seat him until some of the court cases play out. And uh, what was odd about that is, is that uh, Jim Brewster was certified by the Secretary of State as the, win, the winner. The Supreme Court affirmed the decisions that allowed them to arrive at that decision. 
And his credentialing was identical to any of the other senators that were going to be sworn in of either party. And they were going to go ahead and deny, you know, my our district representation, as well as Senator Brewster taking a seat, just for no other reason other than it was just a flex. So uh, as president of the Senate and the, uh, the uh, presiding officer, when they made to move that motion to, to make that a reality, uh, I refused to advance that motion and, and entertain it. And after a lot of drama ensued, they invoked a, a parliamentary proce- procedure to uh, essentially uh, create a vote amongst the GOP majority to uh, essentially eject me from the chamber in order to appoint a new presiding officer of, of the Senate, at which point I, of course, declined. And we, uh, you know, all the Democrats rallied around and Senator Brewster joined all of the other senators that were going to be sworn in. And then ultimately it created a little bit of chaos. And then uh, Senator Brewster d- decided that, you know, he's, you know, we've taken it as far as it can go. So he left the floor and that's when I felt it was appropriate for me to do. And, uh, you know, there was just absolutely no reason why Senator Brewster wasn't seated. He was even he was he even offered a conditional appointment. In other words, if Ms. Ziccarelli, who was his challenger, ultimately prevails in court, which we will learn tomorrow how that the district court decides, uh, he would gladly step down. So this was just just a, a really crass power grab, for lack of a better phrase. And, you know, what was going on at the same time? where there are about 200 angry Trump voters underneath my office balcony on the Capitol steps in Harrisburg, you know, having a rally. And and looking back at what happened, you know, in, in uh, Washington, D.C. the very next day, I, I'm not sure what necessarily made, you know, Harrisburg any different than what D.C. turned into because we didn't have any extra special security and they certainly could have overwhelmed uh, the Capitol building there too. So. It was it was just a, a really weird and chaotic day for for no reason whatsoever. And, and um, turning to Julie, you are the Western Regional uh, Director. You travel. I, I call it Pennsylvania, but I'm going to say Western Pennsylvania. Yeah, Western Pennsylvania. Yeah, twenty six um, counties in the West. And so, has the events of this past week put changed the way that you're able to do your job and like the safety and security that you feel um, working to represent the people in Pennsylvania? You know, I I'd first like to say first, thanks for asking. Um, and you know, the bottom line is, and what I want to get across is, you know, everyone that I work with, everyone that I serve with. We all want to be there to do our jobs and to do our jobs safely. I can also see that everyone that I work with is committed to showing up every day and doing our jobs. Um, I, of course, find the rhetoric concerning. Um, and what we saw last week certainly had a, an impact on me personally um, and, and certainly my own family. Um, but at the end of the day, I am dedicated to what I'm doing um, and we are on a mission and that's what we signed up for. And um, I know that the governor sent out a message to all employees uh, reminding him, all of us of his commitment to making sure that we're all kept safe 
Um, and I find him to be a very trustworthy individual. So um, I, I certainly hope things tone down and that we can focus on the real issues at hand with getting things back on track in this country. And I look forward to working on it. Um, and so, Lieutenant Governor, first of all, thanks again for, for joining us tonight. Um, yeah. I appreciate it. Um, and just to follow up with, with Miracle's initial question um, and your response on that, is there, you know, any sort of possible remotely conceivable scenario where the ultimate outcome of this is not um, Jim Brewster being seated again as state senator? Or, you know, is this just a matter of time for, is this just a matter of waiting for, you know, that court case to be settled um, and Senate Republicans to, you know, inevitably um, concede that eventually? Yeah, uh, there's any number of outcomes. One, the court could find in case of Ms. Ziccarelli tomorrow. And I don't know if the Pennsylvania Democratic Caucus, you know, can appeal that, or would appeal it, or what to what court or what level that, that would appeal to. Uh, Senator Brewster could prevail. Then I don't know, the GOP has the option, I presume, of appealing that uh, f further down uh, the road. Or the Senate majority could just say, you know what, we're not going to seat him because the race was too close. You know, it was 68 votes. I mean, it's really kind of strange. It's like if they wouldn't seat him now when he had the certification, I'm not sure what the court really, the ruling does when the Secretary of State already certified that. And the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, I mean, like, I want to be clear, the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court certified this. And the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court, as you know, is elected democratically by all Pennsylvanians. So this isn't a matter of, you know, some kangaroo court that doesn't have jurisdiction. It's the highest court in our Commonwealth. And you may not like every judgment that comes down, but they were democratically elected. And it's astonishing. It's astonishing that that they criticize me for not following the rules um, of sedent decorum when they're not even following the law, you know, even when it comes down from the highest court. So who knows how long this could get ultimately dragged out. My my outrage is also directed at the fact that, you know, they they passed the law. They literally passed the law that prevented me from flying uh, pride flags and and weed flags from my office balcony, which is very prominent in, in Gasper. But they didn't have anything to say when one of their sitting senators that was sworn in the same time Senator Brewster was supposed to be for basically participating in the Capitol Hill uprising. There's a picture of him with former uh, state rep Rick Saccone. And Rick Saccone says, we're, we're storming the Capitol. I mean, literally, that's his phrase. So I guess storming the Capitol, you know, during a, a, that kind of uprising was OK, but not seating a senator or advocating for LGBTQIA rights and and marijuana legalization uh, is, you know, they need to pass a law. So it's just bizarre. I, I don't, I don't understand where they're coming from. I truly don't. Carl, you're muted. Okay. I think I'm off of you now. Uh, thanks, Mr. Producer. Uh, yeah, Mr. L uh, Lieutenant Governor, one of the things that I've noticed is in the misinformation campaign about um, how Act 77 was implemented and, and how uh, the election uh, played out, it, you know, in the state of Pennsylvania, it appears that some across the aisle are trying to use it as a, as a way to um, try to pass more draconian uh, laws that would make voting even harder. You know, I feel like, you know, I've hear, I'm hearing a lot of rhetoric 
from the other side of the Iowa, you know, about we need to really look into what happened in this election and create, you know, safeguards to restore, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, uh, reluctance that we have, you know, toward the, the, the voting system. Is this what you're hearing as well, you know, from your perch sure. and, and, you know, and, and how, how vigilant do we have to be to ensure that, uh, that some interests in the state of Pennsylvania don't make it harder uh, to vote the next time we go to the polls? That, that's, that's really an excellent question. And uh, one that, that'll, uh, that brings like a discussion of voting by mail. I think we would all agree it's better when it's easier to vote and it's more accessible for more people. Generally speaking, those that don't support that don't think they can win the, the, the battle of ideas. You know, I think the, the party with the best ideas wants the most people to vote because then they're going to win. So vote by mail. I want to be clear. I want to clear up any confusion. Vote by mail was 100% a GOP bill. They voted for it unanimously. In fact, almost all of our Allegheny County delegation, both, both in the House and Senate, voted against it. Same with Philadelphia. Basically, it was the Republican bargain to uh, eliminate state party voting ticket uh, in, in, in Pennsylvania. We, are, we in Utah were the only two states in the nation that still had that. So they said, we'll give you vote by mail if you get rid of line uh, straight party voting. And then after it passed, there was great fanfare and they were excited. In fact, the Pennsylvania Democrats said, whoa, 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 2020 is a big year. Let's just wait till 2021 so we can iron it out. And they're like, no, no, no. We want it on 2020 because they were banking on suppressing the, the votes out of Philly and Pittsburgh by not having straight party voting. So it's very different. And then the pandemic hit, and then suddenly vote by mail made it easier for all these populations to vote, especially during a, 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 a pandemic. And then they had huge buyer's remorse, coupled with Donald Trump saying that it's rigged and it's fraudulent. And then it turned into a case of, we had zero issues, zero. Our general election was perfect by any, any standard metric of, of elections. We had three documented criminal cases of voter fraud. They all happen to involve Trump supporters having dead relatives vote for the president. And the Republicans are going to try something very sinister. And they are actually trying to change the Constitution through resolution in the House and the Senate, which would alter the very structure of our Supreme Court, how they're elected. And what they would do is allow districts within Pennsylvania to elect a specific justice on the Supreme Court instead of having these statewide. And the reason they want these districts is because they would carve out areas that virtually guarantee you're going to have a conservative member elected to the state Supreme Court. They, they lost playing it fair and square statewide. So that is, I think, the most sinister and direct threat to voting rights and a lot of other things in Pennsylvania because they are trying to, they're, they're upset, quite frankly, that Democrats won the Supreme Court in 2015. And they wanted, they're literally trying to change the Constitution because they're sore losers. So they're trying to essentially gerrymander the, the state Supreme Court. So Pennsylvania voters have to vote that down. And that can only, they can only be successful if we as Pennsylvanians vote for it. And Pennsylvanians have a history of saying yes to constitutional amendments just because they don't necessarily get involved. But I would just urge, you know, your incredible organization and its advocacy, because that's going to be huge. Because that's front and center on their agenda 
to undermine voting rights and any number of things here in Pennsylvania. And before we go to the uh, back to Miracle, I do want to thank you for calling out. Uh, I believe it was the Attorney Governor of Texas. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, multiple times, and, and hopefully, I do hope you get your sheets. Oh. Uh, you know, all your all your, your all you can eat sheets. You know, uh, extravaganza yeah, that you guys. But, but I really, I think, I say it with humor, but I think it was important that you know you did what you did to call him out and to make it a national story about um, how the only voting fraud that we found in the state of Pennsylvania was the fraud that you called out, which is three people, three dead Republicans voting for uh, President Trump. Well, thank you. And and, and uh, although although I didn't expect uh, my my uh, colleague in Texas to actually pay up, all any money he would have paid would have gone to the Greater Pittsburgh Food Bank. Because, I mean, the need is so, so extreme. But you brought up a great point. Those were out of seven million votes. There was three cases. And also, let me just say there was a lot of awful dog whistling done by Republicans and the president. You know, bad things happen in Philadelphia. All that is is just code for, for saying they cheat, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's just gross. It was gross at every level. And one of my good friends, Commissioner Al Smith in Philadelphia, was a Republican commissioner. And he actually pushed back against that. And he received death threats. Um, his children literally had to go into... ...very specific, credible death threats. So uh, it's, it's, it's an awful, awful time. And even the Republicans that told the truth, that did their job, became targets of the president. And it's just not a surprise that what happened on Capitol Hill, when literally, you know, our, our voting commissioner, Republican voting commissioner in Philadelphia, received extensive death threats for him and his family. Wow. Thank you for that. Um, and I know we're just coming up on time, so I do have a couple of questions about some of the reports that are talking about there's going to be a lot. Uh, Pittsburgh is a hot um, bed there, saying it's one of the cities that there may be some issues this weekend. Um, and so a lot of people are, you know, have like fear, but they are wanting to make sure that there is a weighing between their fear and their civil liberties because they don't want to see a lot more state police and state violence and state surveillance. Um, so are there any uh, plans that you can share with us about like how um, various government entities are going to be responding to these allegations of, I guess I would say, domestic terror threats that are being targeted at Pittsburgh and other cities? Sure. Well, I can say this. The, the state police has a very specific unit that all they do is monitor online activity, like day and night, uh, especially now during heightened times of, of, of all this. Um, so I can assure you that the, the state police are coordinating with, with uh, local authorities out here in western Pennsylvania on a state and federal level. And, um, you know, it, it's because there's been a lot of deplatforming of the president and some of these other awful uh, individuals, it's it's getting harder to kind of spread that misinformation, but uh, it, it's something that is is taken very seriously. They have to take it seriously. Look what happened in, in Washington, D.C. And um, I, I think that uh, I, I don't believe that there'll be any additional violence of, of any kind, uh, you know, certainly not on the order that we saw in, in Washington, D.C., but I think everyone's aware, aware of that. But of course, there are people that are committed to disrupting and there are people that are committed to violence uh, is most most crazed kinds of supporters. Um, and uh, but but fingers crossed. 
Um, and then I guess because it made news, uh, you hit a really good threshold um, for your um, unannounced uh, campaign um, for a Senate uh, here in Pennsylvania. What are some of the issues that you see um, are the biggest unanswered issues that um, Pennsylvanians want um, you to represent them for? Sure. Well, our minimum wage is $7.25, which is shameful. You you know, $15 an hour, you know, is the minimum that any anyone should be should be working for. Then you, you have uh, unions, you have health care, you have LGBTQ rights, you have police accountability, you have voting rights, you have legal legalizing marijuana, you have systemic criminal justice reform, which if I had a couple, have a couple minutes, I'd love to talk about pardons. I'm chair of the board of pardons and Julie's joining us. She's our pardons coordinator for Western Pennsylvania. I, I really want to sell that because I'm Lieutenant governor for two more years and we have expedited pardons processes now and they're free. Uh, there's no application fee. So Julie is, is an expert on the process and we are, sending more and more people through and giving more and more, you know, uh, just as, as faster than it's ever happened in, in the history of, of, of Pennsylvania, quite frankly. So, so I would just like anyone who's watching that might need something taken off their record, especially a stupid marijuana conviction from years ago, ridiculous kind of conviction, that now is the time to, to uh, apply. I also work with, you know, I spend a good deal of time working with groups, um, you know, even doing things virtually now, that's one change from COVID. Um, normally I'm out and, and very engaged with the, the community and going to speak about the pardons process. Um, but I'm, I'm open to talking to anybody about the pardons process and really making sure that everyone understands, you know, the pardons process could be a great option for you. And, you know, there's no cost to apply and, you know, really, I think it's worthwhile to investigate. Julie, I'm of the opinion you don't even need an attorney. Do you, do you agree with that? I agree with that. Yeah. Like, yeah, please don't don't waste money on an attorney. Like, don't let this process intimidate you or put you off. There's never been a better there's never been a, a better chance. There's uh, I also, if, if I if I may add, there there are wonderful resources online um, on the BO, Board of Pardons website. Um, there are YouTube videos walking you through. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, the team has worked very hard to make sure that we get that information out in as many ways as possible. Um, certainly people learn differently. So there's a variety of different ways and flowcharts. I and mean, certainly by contacting our office, um, I'm certainly more than happy to share those resources with folks as well. And I mean, if I'm sure everyone's familiar with uh, uh, Corey Sanders case out in McKeesport, I don't know if you remember, he ran and won a McKeesport council seat and he was denied because he had a drug conviction from 1993 and he had to give it up. And I, I was outraged by that during my first campaign and called for a pardon. And then he applied and then he was ultimately denied under my predecessor. And then when I took over, I said, you got to get your app in uh, back in and reapply. And he did. And he just got a pardon just a, a few uh, you know, a month or two ago. And now he's got an entire political future and career ahead of him. If he so chooses to run for elective office, he has a clean slate. 
And, you know, and, and the fact that McKeith Port was denied his leadership over a drug conviction a quarter of a century ago, that's the essence. That's the reason why we have this pardons process. And now, for the first time more than ever in the history of the Commonwealth, those folks that have, are living their best lives and still living in the shadow of that mistake that they made 10, 15, 20 years or more have the opportunity for free to apply, have it stripped from your record, and open up a whole slew of new opportunities. And Julie is our Western Pennsylvania director. She's an expert in that. You don't need an attorney. You don't. The only thing you have to lose, quite frankly, is your record. And I just hope everybody takes takes that to heart because it really, truly is an opportunity to do this. And we have expedited reviews. We have it so now that if you get four or five votes in merit review, you don't even have to show up to the hearing because that's that's how streamlined we've had the process. So I, uh, you know, Julie's going to have information for everybody to to reach out. But this is one of these practical things. You know, that, you know, that I just, you know, I'll never do anything finer in public life than to help bring these kind of second chances uh, uh, to people that deserve them. And for the first time in Pennsylvania, we're also digitizing the process, too. Uh, That was slowed down because of the pandemic. But that is is also happening. Yeah, I've, I've been to some of the hearings and it astonished me. Like people were like, hey, like 20 years ago, this and I'm like. 20 years, 30 years. And so just to see like the joy and the tears of relief oh when people get approved is, is something that I think um, everyone should watch the hearings and participate to see like how important it really is. And I know we're wrapping up on time. So I'm going to just kick it over to Ryan to ask the last questions. Yeah, for sure. Thank you, Miracle. Um, yeah, so um, that, that was kind of the last question I had as well along the same lines. Um, but I guess, it, you know, in addition to some of those issues that you would want to address, um, you know, what, what prompted you to, to seriously consider um, another run at, at the U.S. Senate in the, in the 22 election cycle? I, I just, you know, all those issues are still, are still front and center you know, in, our, in our country. And uh, I, I think Pennsylvania needs an opportunity to send two Democratic senators, just like Georgia did. And uh, I think whether, again, take your pick on all these issues that we're talking about tonight, you know, it is only made possible if we have control of the Senate. As Congressman Doyle pointed out, if we don't have uh, a Democratic senator that can, you know, look look at the damage Pat Toomey has done. You know, in the last couple of weeks, he's found his spine, but that's only because he's not up for re-election anymore. He's retiring. The fact that he couldn't stand up for the truth, he couldn't stand up for for anything. You know, he he towed the, the the Trump line like Betsy DeVos. Betsy DeVos was confirmed by a fifty-one uh, to uh, one vote majority, and that was Pat Toomey's vote. Think about how things could have gone differently as well, too. So, um, you know, the things that we work on, and, and you know, as lieutenant governor, are things that you know, looking to take uh, to uh, to Washington. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you for that. Again, really appreciate you, um, you know, being able to join us tonight, talk about that, um, especially with, you know, all the all the recent events that have unfolded the past week, um, you know, and all the urgent issues that, that have been spotlighted and, and that have come about as a result of that. So thank you again for your time. Well, uh, I, I, of course, am, am delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. 
Julie, thank you for joining us. And, and oh, of course. <laughs> I, just, I just want to make one last shameless pitch for pardons. Please, you know, like, again, truly, in the history of the Commonwealth, there's never been a better time to, to, to get this, uh, you know, to, to free yourself of, of something from, from years ago. So thank you. Don't be intimidated by the process. Please reach out. Absolutely. Thank you both for your time. Yeah, come back anytime, please. Be safe. Good to see you. Absolutely. Please stay safe. Yeah, so it, it's a lot going on in Pennsylvania. Um, like uh, Lieutenant Governor said, tomorrow the local court is supposed to rule about um, how they're going to uh, seat um, the the seat seat the seat um because it is contested so one the um one argument that some of the republicans have made is that due to the nature of the votes due to the issue with the signatures that the senate themselves should be able to vote on who gets seated and who has the win um and so it's going to be a very interesting uh day tomorrow um, but Ryan is going to uh, talk about some couple of interesting events that we have coming up next week for um, MLK Day. And then I will um, come back to do the wrap up. Absolutely. Thank you, Miracle. Um, so, yeah, for, for MLK Day next week, uh, National Day of Service, <clears throat> um, we have a couple different events that we're helping to organize um, with the with the presidential inaugural committee helping to promote that. Um, but we're also working alongside. Uh, the Alliance for Police Accountability, Take Action Mont Valley, Pittsburgh I Can't Breathe, um, and various other groups in these efforts. And so the two the two main things we're working on, um, you know, around MLK Day and the National Day of Service um, is, first of all, we're working on organizing a rent relief fundraiser. Um, so the GoFundMe is up for that right now. We're already collecting donations for that. Um, and that'll run even through next week. Um, you know, until we... Our current goal is 5000 We're going to see if we can raise... Um, even more on that and work on getting that distributed to, you know, the people who are in most urgent need of, of assistance um, as, as you know, evictions continue to be a looming threat, unfortunately. Um, so, that yeah, that's the first event we have for this upcoming week. Um, and we're also uh, organizing a community food drive, which will be next Monday, uh, starting at 11 a.m. at Black House Collections, uh, which is, uh, I believe, 441st Avenue downtown. Um and so, yeah, we're currently, we're also taking donations for food from, you know, anyone in the general public right now as well, um, especially, you know, canned goods and anything with a substantial shelf life. But if you have produce or anything like that, um, that you'd like to donate as well, we ask that you save that for this weekend, you know, just so it's still fresh for people on Monday. Um, but yeah, so for anyone who needs, um, you know, anyone who needs access to food, healthy food, you know, stuff with, a, you know, a pretty substantial um, shelf life. Um, you know, absolutely stop by. We're getting donations from the food bank, um, potentially some other grocery stores and farms and the public in general. Uh, so we should have a lot to distribute. Um, yeah, so we're, you know, really excited and looking forward to both of those events. And then we also have a virtual event uh, this Friday, which will be um, broadcast on Facebook Live. We're still finalizing the details for that, um, likely at 6 to 8 p.m., and that'll be in connection with our rent relief fundraiser, just really, you know, trying to raise awareness for that, get some more donations in. Um, and we'll, ha we'll be having some guest speakers from PER and, and other organizations um, to provide people with, you know, important information and resources and other things along those lines in connection with, with getting rent relief. 
Yes. So this year, it, you know, we're off to um, a start, but mutual aid and community is how we're going to make it through and how we're going to support and protect each other. Um, if you are just new to like One Hood or One Hood Power, um, One Hood uh, Power, we are a C4 organization. We use our platform to build up people and politics and power. And so we want to thank you all um, so much for joining us. And I, um, for the rest of the week, we have a lot of events happening um, because uh, white supremacy does not stop. So we do have this week of white supremacy um, coming back on Wednesday. Um, tomorrow, for what Black Pittsburgh needs to know, we're going to have a discussion about how the events of like, uh, last week were, were privileged, were, were exercised um, in privilege. Uh, we're bringing back um, Ask a Black Doctor um, because we know a lot of you have questions about COVID-19 um, and, and this vaccine and what it means uh, for you and your community as we do uh, the rollout. And of course, like uh, Ryan said, we will have um, the fundraiser on uh, Friday as well. Um, just so there's a lot of things for you to do to get involved in. Of course, we want to remind you um, here in Pennsylvania, um, if you have not already, you have five more days to register uh, to get your health insurance. Um, it's on the uh, Pennsylvania marketplace. We'll put the link in the chat as well. Um, so if you do not have health insurance, um, uh, please go online. Uh, Pennsylvania does have a Medicaid expansion. Um, so if you are one of the people, like so many thousands of Pennsylvanians who are recently um, unemployed or underemployed, there's still uh, uh, plans for you um, on the marketplace for to have health insurance um, for 2021. So I want to thank you all. Um, so much for joining us and I will kick it over to Kahari um, so he can take us out. I may still be up. There we go. Thank you, producer. Um, want to thank Congressman Doyle, uh, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, as well as uh, Pennsylvania, Western Pennsylvania Regional Director uh, Julie uh, Strickland-Gilliard uh, as well for joining us for, you know, just a really powerful, you know, uh, episode um, of, of One Hood Power Hour, obviously talking about all the chaos at the capitals, um, important legislation, voting rights, media diversity. Um, you know, so this is, you know, a great example of, of why, you know, we want to use this platform as a way to keep uh, the community engaged and hear from folks that you may not hear from every day. So, uh, you know, again, I want to thank Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, Congressman Doyle, uh, Julie Shrick and Gilliard for joining us. And until next Monday at 7 p.m., stay safe, stay engaged, and definitely stay safe. I'll reiterate, stay safe, um, you know, over the next week and, and the weeks moving forward in the midst of this pandemic and in the midst of this unrest. Um, you know, let's hope for uh, better days uh, will come sooner than later. So thank you for joining us again. For my colleagues, Ryan White and Miracle Jones, this is Kahari Mosley signing off for the One Hood Power Hour. Thank you for joining us.